everyone, to another edition of Streaming Water Podcast. I'm your host, Blair Corning, and this is the podcast where we talk about all things Colorado water and wastewater. Uh, the podcast is co-sponsored by the Rocky Mountain Water Environment Federation and the Colorado Wastewater Utility Council, and this is episode 12 of our podcast. And we got a good one lined up today. Our guest today is Jill Oropesa. Jill is the Director uh, for Water Quality Services Division at Fort Collins, and today uh, she's on to talk to us a little bit about forest fires and the effect of fires on watershed and, and drinking water in general. So welcome, Jill. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. This just happens to be one of my favorite topics. Oh, that's good. That's good because uh, we've got a lot of interest. This episode was suggested by a, a podcast listener that emailed in and, and wanted to wanted to hear about this topic in particular. There's been a lot of news about the fires and the effect of the fires and It'll be interesting to see how it affects our world in the water business. So thanks, Jill. If we could start out, can you uh, give us a little background about yourself, what you like to do as far as hobbies and, and professionally also? Sure thing. Um, so, you know, kind of starting way back, I'm originally from a rural farm community in eastern Kansas. Um, moved up from there. I went to attended University of Kansas. Um, and got an undergraduate degree in environmental sciences. Um, after graduating, I decided I was going to head west, and I spent um, several years working in a number of states, California, Wyoming, Washington State, and then eventually ended up in Colorado. Um, I've been here for about 19 years now. Um, you know, and that sort of uh, meandering start of my career path um, provided a lot of really great experiences working for both federal and state agencies. Um, I work for a couple different universities and then even as a stint in private um, industry as an environmental consultant. Um, eventually, um, I found my way uh, back to graduate school at the Colorado State University where I got a master's in ecology. Um, out of grad school, um, I ended up getting a position um, with the city of Fort Collins as in their new water... Uh, watershed program. And so I was filling a brand new position as the watershed specialist, which was an exciting opportunity for me. And I have um, since worked as the watershed program manager and currently I'm the director of water quality services. Um, over my tenure at the city, um, I have supported processes of, you know, protecting, monitoring, testing water quality to ensure that our customers and community are supplied good quality drinking water. I currently also get to learn about uh, and lead efforts on the wastewater side of our operations, where we have a lab team that are focused on monitoring and analyzing um, samples that support our treatment facilities, as well as environmental protection and compliance uh, samples. So, um, you know, our my time at the city is, it really stood out that we have a really outstanding public private and academic um, network um, that's really focused on watersheds and water resources issues. And it really makes engaging in studies and solving problems and improving our services a whole lot of fun. Yeah, I bet. It must be nice to uh, be up there with CSU with all the, the agriculture and forestry programs up there going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And then in my um, free time, um, I would just say I spend a lot of my spare time out on the trails with my dog and 
on my paddleboard when the weather allows. Um, I've got a pretty great garden I really enjoy. And aside from that, there's always house projects and spending time with my husband and my two kids. Nice. Well, now on to the interesting question, Jill. Uh, what was one of the most interesting concerts you have been to? Most interesting or, uh, or best, but uh, what's, what's an interesting concert you've seen? Well, I've been to a lot of really great concerts over the years, but um, one that stands out in the interesting category was um, I saw Marty Stewart and his fabulous superlatives at a uh, Targi Bluegrass Festival a couple summers ago, and honestly, I had never heard of them, but apparently they've got some pretty deep roots in the old country rock scene, and uh, it was it was a really fun scene. They were super polished showmen, and uh, they put on a great performance. But it was it came along with you know big blow dried hair and custom suits covered in rhinestones. Nice. Yeah, it was it was memorable and super entertaining. That does sound good. Marty Stewart and his, what was it, superlatives? Fabulous superlatives. Wow, that's a great name. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to steal look, that. Yeah, you should, you should check him out. It's, uh, if you're, it's, it's uh, akin to, you know, the Johnny Cash and um, Earl Scruggs kind of um, old country rock scene. Yeah, I like that stuff. I should check that out. All right. Well, thanks, Jill. Let's get uh, get started with the the water quality and wildfire portion uh, of the show here. So, my first question, just in general, I don't know a heck of a lot. Of, I know I know water quality, but the whole fire side of it is is new to me. So, how does a wildfire affect the watershed and, and affect the water quality in general? Yeah. So, as we in Colorado often have, um, our, our watersheds are oftentimes forested landscapes. And um, we've had a lot of, um, we've had drought and we have had um, insect infestations like the mountain pine beetle that have um, altered sort of the health of the forest, making them um, fairly susceptible to wildfires. So um, whether it's uh, a spark from you know, a camper or lightning strikes, once they're started, there's the potential for um, really large spread. So as they move across, these big fires move across the landscape, really the effect they have is to uh, consume trees, other vegetation, and surface materials like the, you know, the pine needles on the forest floor and large woody debris. And factors like weather, forest type, soil moisture, even topography and other, other things affect the intensity of the fire and the speed that it moves across the landscape. And it can result in various degrees of uh, combustion and it leaves behind um, sort of a patchy network of burned and unburned. Um, oftentimes some areas will be um, purely ash. Um, sometimes you'll see partially consumed materials. And um, it's really that lack of tree canopy and ground vegetation um, and that organic layer that makes the watershed really susceptible to flooding and erosion during and following rain events, particularly in those first few years before any vegetation has had a chance to return. And essentially, without anything to dissipate the impact of the rainfall um, and to absorb that precipitation, 
it will run off over the hill slopes, creating uh, what are known as rills or gullies as it moves downhill. And as that water accumulates in channels, it picks up tons of sediment and ash along the way. And eventually, um, that transported material um, will end up being deposited in wetlands, in rivers, and reservoirs. And many of those um, actually feed and serve as our drinking water supplies for our downstream communities. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So it's how long does it take for the forest once there's a, and maybe it depends on the fire, but once a fire moves through, how long does it take to, to have regrowth or get it back to somewhat normal? It does depend on several factors, including the amount of rainfall you get and the intensity of the burn. But um, typically what you would see is anywhere between five and 10 years, um, you will get um, some level of recovery, depending on how you define recovery. For us, we're looking at um, watershed recovery in terms of water quality parameters. So primarily the way that we measure response to wildfire when it comes to water quality, we're looking at things like turbidity, changes in pH, conductivity, nutrients, organic carbon, metals, that kind of thing. And so tracking those over time gives us the ability to kind of watch when the, water, when the watershed and when the water quality returns to what we would call baseline conditions. Good. Can you talk to us a little bit about Fort Collins' experience with past fires, either the recent ones or, or the, you know, fires previous to that? So Fort Collins Utilities, we have two water supplies. We have the Cache Laputa River and Horse Tooth Reservoir, and each of those provides about half of our utilities' annual supplies. And both of those sources have different contributing watersheds, um, both of which are those forested type. And they consist of a mix of federal, state, and private ownership, which makes um, treatment and tracking and monitoring and all the activities we do in our watershed. It uh, requires this to be a really collaborative approach. In 2012, we had two fires, the Hewlett Gulch Fire and the High Park Fire. And together, they burned about 90,000 acres in um, what I'll call the mid and lower elevations of our Poudre River watershed. Um, it burned uh, for about two weeks um, in mid-June, and it was due to the timing. It was um, followed nearly immediately by some high-intensity afternoon thunderstorms. The fires um, were the first experience that many um, people that worked in the utilities had um, experienced. We'd had some small, you know, 100-acre fires here and there, but we'd never had to deal with anything on this scale. Um, the fires resulted in really drastic changes in water quality that we were really responding to um, in a reactionary way. We were really lucky to have redundancy in our water supplies, and we, had, we were able to rely on the option to close our intake in the river when water quality was impacted and really poor. And in, when we would do that, we were able to switch over to our horse tooth reservoir water supply. We did, um, during that phase, we, collect, or we installed an early warning system, which is comprised of a water quality monitoring instrument called a, a SON. Um, that allows us to track several parameter, water quality parameters um, in near real time. 
And we located that um, in that monitoring station several miles above our supply intake. And that really enabled us to pick up uh, changes in water quality as, there, as that um, impacted water was moving downstream and it would um, send a signal through our system to our water treatment facility and alert um, operators that we needed to shut down our line which is a process we need to have some time for. It takes about an hour to do that fully. So this really enabled us to um, be agile and adapt to conditions as they, they change really rapidly. We had been focusing a lot on monitoring and tracking sort of watershed recovery, and we were fortunate in some ways to have all the ample precipitation that came along with the 2013 floods that really accelerated the watershed recovery. And so it was about five years we saw a really significant return to baseline conditions from a water quality perspective. And then we had the Cameron Peak Fire, of course, which is um, the largest fire in Colorado history. Currently it's sitting around 209,000 acres. And this fire burned um, in mid to upper elevations of the watershed. So in the un unburned areas from the High Park fire. It also ignited later in the season. Um, it started in August and it's um, technically still burning. Um, and we're sitting in mid-November. We did go about adding an additional instrument to our early warning monitoring system further upstream. So now that consists of two stations. And another difference um, that this fire is presenting is that there are a lot of um, water supply reservoirs in our watershed that are impacted this time. Um, that was uh, not the case in the, in the High Park fire. So at this point, we're looking at some different timing of snowmelt and um, snowfall at this point in time, very little has been done on the ground in terms of post-fire recovery or restoration activities, and snowpack is already accumulating. So most likely our first opportunity is to get in there and assess damage and to really um, be proactive in terms of getting um, hill slope stabilization measures on the ground is likely going to come after snowmelt runoff. So. Yeah. It's a very different type of situation, and um, I guess you could say another opportunity to learn. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm always surprised I see on the news that it's, I don't know what percent contained now, the uh, Cameron Peak fire, but I'm like, it's still burning yet there's snow on the ground. It just doesn't in my brain add up. I mean, I can see you got it you know, underground, and, and you know, it just seems weird that we're this late in, in November, and uh, there's snow on the ground yet the forest fire is still going. Yeah, I think we're currently sitting at 92% containment and um, some of the hot spots that are happening from my understanding are just some large woody material, some big logs and root systems that are smoldering out there. And um, I think at this point in time, the effort is focused on getting some water drops on it and doing a lot of just monitoring um, and hoping that um, those those materials are consumed fairly soon. Yeah. You mentioned some of the agencies, external partner agencies you work with as far as working in the watershed. I can imagine there's at least that much coordination internally between departments in the city as far as water quality, resources, water rights. Can you talk a little bit about 
the coordination you have to do internally? Sure, yeah. Our utilities, we're, we're working with our water resources group. We are working with our environmental regulatory affairs group. Our water quality lab is supporting um, water quality testing and other things like that. Um, we had some in, an interesting situation where um, we were doing some work, um, not us particularly, but um, Northern Water was doing some work on our reservoir and essentially um, we were reliant on the Poudre River um, almost entirely except for on an emergency basis. And during this time, um, there was a lot of coordination that was required and we were working closely with our uh, communications groups and our water conservation group. And then we also have a group of folks who are um, manage our watershed program and they have been out talking to um, other partners and gathering data and installing monitoring systems and that sort of thing. So you're right, it has involved a lot of different folks and different types of expertise. Yeah, sounds like you uh, you get to wear a lot of hats too, communicator, scientist, planner, you know, the whole the whole gamut there. Yeah, it's it's a it's really multifaceted and um, yeah, I feel really fortunate. We have a lot of um, really talented folks to lean on. Yeah. All right. Well, Jill, I think we're to our mid-show segment now. And so I have been into uh, flash fiction. Have you ever heard of flash fiction? I have not. Now, it's like a short story, only it can be one, you know, anywhere from one sentence long to about a thousand thousand words you know so it's it's basically a shorter short story but i've uh, been into that lately so i'm going to read a little flash fiction here it's called leapfrog taking your boss's job is never easy isla had seen this coming but never thought it would happen so fast she walked into the expansive office at the end of the hall an interminable trainee she left as the orc operator in responsible charge she always felt like she was in charge, a little, at least of some things, but never responsible charge. That was always Cal's job, and he never showed even a slight interest in relinquishing it. Cal came out of the office next, trying to hold his head high. His life had just been upended. He wasn't going to let her see that. All the years he had stayed late, worked holidays, and put the company first didn't have any bearing on this decision. Before there could be any opportunity for eye contact, Isla headed for her truck alone. That was usual. Sometimes they would work together on big jobs like pump replacements or storage tank cleanings. Usually they worked alone. It was a necessity driven by workload. As she bobbed and weaved through mud holes and snow drifts to her destination, Costilla County Pump Station Number 1, Isla could hear Cal's voice in her head. His know-it-all tenor was unrelenting. Aim to please. Use your SOPs, Isla Trujillo. Use all of your senses to head off expenses, Isla Trujillo. If the auto sampler whines, check the lines, Isla Trujillo. She was used to the rhymes, but would never get used to him using her full name. She felt they should be on a first-name basis by now, at least. It must have been a power thing, the last name using. Talking down to her like an elder statesman to an intern. She wished that now that she was in charge, 
She could send him to a power dynamics in the workplace class, but knew it wouldn't do any good. Isla entered the pump station and headed down the stairs. She lightly placed her hand on each pump motor as she passed. Too much heat could indicate loss of prime or overgreased bearings. She listened for the correct cadence of the packing gland drips and smelled the air for any hint of chemical or burnt rubber odors. She approached the sample sink and saw Cal's color wheel chlorine analyzer next to it. The color wheel analyzer had gone the way of cassette tapes and rotary phones, but Cal insisted on using it. Made sense. She thought she remembered kicking around some cassettes in the passenger seat of his truck before. Highly used a digital meter with auto zero and backlit LCD display. Just another example of the technology changes she wanted to make, only to be met by resistance from Cal every time. Isla took a sample from the faucet and pushed the digital meter aside. She would use the color wheel today, in honor of Cal. Maybe that was one thing she could do at least. She filled up the tubes to the etch mark with water, added a small packet of powder to one, and waited for the reaction to complete. When it had, she held the viewport toward the sunlight coming in through the window. She rotated the wheel until the color of the two tubes matched. Cal had always liked this part the best. He used to tell Isla that her high-tech instrument couldn't be as accurate as his because the sun couldn't get into hers. As if the sun god Apollo himself had some input into the disinfection potential of the storage tank water. Isla pulled back into the parking lot around sunset her truck covered in the mud and dirt of three different Colorado counties. Through the dirt, you could barely make out the logo on the door. Trujillo Water and Wastewater Operations. I'll care for your water like it was my own daughter, was the tagline below. She met Cal as he was coming out the front door. He sat down a box containing certificates and awards and looked at her. His eyes told her that he was scared. She hoped hers weren't telling him the same thing back. I'm not ready, Isla. I don't want to leave you alone here, he said. She gave him a hug and told him, You can't worry about this place right now, Dad. You need to focus on you. The chemo isn't ever going to work unless you give your body the rest it needs. I know, Isla, he said, hugging her back. It's all happening so fast. You've got to take care of the customers, he said, choking up. I've got this, Dad. It's in good hands, she said. I know it is, Isla, he said as he hugged her tighter. Cal headed to his truck. Isla could swear she heard the sound of a cassette click into place before he put it into gear and pulled onto the dirt road, which would soon deliver him home. Isla went inside and sat down in the big office at the end of the hall. She had to keep it all together now, and she could already tell that being in responsible charge was going to be harder than she thought. There you go, flash fiction for you, Jill. Well, that's great. Um, where do you find flash fiction? Flash fiction, you find there's some magazines that uh, specialize in flash fiction, or you uh, you just write it yourself, or uh, you know, there's one called uh, Smoke Long. <laughs> Somebody said flash fiction should be in the time it takes to smoke a cigarette, so I think that's where it got its name. That's one of them. Cool. All right. Well, let's get back. That was kind of a yeah, it was kind of a change from our fire topic, but let's get back to it. 
Jill, what kind of uh, issues with water treatment as far as in the water plant, what operational uh, issues do you see due to, due to the wildfire effects? Yeah, so regardless of whether or not we have wildfires, we're still responsible for meeting all of those EPA and State of Colorado water quality standards for safe drinking water, which as you know, are very stringent. And in that way, fire impacted water and treating that water can be present some real challenges. Um, turbidity that comes in um, to the treatment facility can um, pretty quickly over overload a filtration system if you're not um, monitoring that really carefully. Um, it does require um, adjusting the process speed, um, sometimes requires increased use of chemicals like alum or other polymers to remove ash and sediment. The excess dissolved organic carbon that might come in um, to the water supply, we do a really great job of removing the majority of it. However, whatever residual dissolved organic carbon is available to react with the chlorine during the disinfection process. And that can produce a number of regulated compounds known as disinfection byproducts. So that's another thing that we have to watch really carefully. We, having some experience during High Park Fire, um, we know that we can get smoky taste and odors that permeate the water for typically a fairly short amount of time, but um, that can really affect the public perception of the, the safety. Even if the quality of the water hasn't changed, uh, that changed aesthetic um, can really affect the consumer experience. So it is a priority for us to control those compounds, and that does also require the addition of um, additional um, chemicals like activated carbon in the treatment process. Um, and though that adding activated carbon is very much like um, what you might utilize um, as a domestic water quality filter on your sink tap or something like that. All the additional sediment, the activated carbon we might be using or alum, all of those additional materials will um, ultimately end up as <clears throat> an increase in the production of uh, treatment solids residuals and we have to manage those solids um, at our facility and there is some additional cost um, associated with that as well as increased maintenance costs um, that ultimately all end up resulting in higher treatment costs around. And um, depending on the magnitude of those increase in costs, it could impact the, the cost of our um, product we're trying to deliver to our customers. Yeah. You might be missing an opportunity. People love uh, people loved everything smoked now as far as meats. I've seen I've even seen smoked eggs. I've seen pretty much smoked everything. Maybe smoked water. I'd like to try that actually. But well, we may you may have an opportunity. Fires <laughs> <laughs> around. <laughs> All right. You talked about your your sons out in the field. Have you had to have you had to implement any other water quality monitoring instrumentation or, or changes due to the what you've learned or what what you're monitoring from these fires? Yeah, we have a really active watershed monitoring program, and we've had a, a long-term monitoring program in place since uh, about 2007, and that has served us both in the High Park Fire and now will again in the Cameron Peak Fire in being able to evaluate pre and post fire impacts. Um, the additional opportunity 
that this data set provides us is that now we can look at the, the different impacts between the two fires that burned um, fairly differently. So that's an opportunity that we're going to try to leverage. Um, that monitoring program, we have about 20 monitoring sites um, within uh, the Poudre River watershed basin. And that's a collaborative program. So we partner with two other water utilities in the area that also use that as their supply. So um, it's a pretty powerful program um, and it sets us up well to monitor impacts of things like fires. The other thing that we're doing is along with those uh, real-time monitoring stations that I had mentioned, we have paired and at least at one of the locations and we're working on the second currently, but we're trying to pair those with some ISCO samplers. And for those who don't know, those are some automated sampler sampling machines that um, collect aliquots of, of water over a period of time. And those would be triggered by a storm event. And essentially what collecting a storm event sample lets us do is to understand what, okay, what's the worst case scenario? It also lets you track over time. Um, how, how does storm response change? Um, does it um, diminish over time? Or do you see other, other types of trends? And then um, this time around, we're also looking, you know, how does this fire differ um, from the Hyde Park? And then the last area that our watershed team really focuses on is special studies. Like I mentioned earlier, also, we have a lot of relationships and a strong network of other, with other utilities and the university, and they have a lot of, and there's some very active research. I should also mention the Rocky Mountain Research Station that's part of the U.S. Forest Service is also located in Fort Collins. And um, the, it's been uh, some really powerful um, opportunities to take a look at um, questions that are of interest uh, to the utilities as well as the, you know, kind of professional and academic realm of forest management and fire response. So do a lot of coordination and we do support and some studies that will help us ultimately understand the impacts that the fires will have on our water supply, as well as how we go about best mitigating post-fire impacts. Yeah, all this is so interesting. Like you see the news and I think people automatically think of the immediate destruction of the fire and the structures and people's lives upended, but you know, rarely. And I mean, I'm even in the water business and it's just, you don't think about these watershed impacts, drinking water impacts and, and forest impacts. So this is, this is interesting. Can you talk to us about efforts that the city is, is taking to manage the forest health and, and can you prevent these fires or can you do anything to, to make it easier when they happen? I can speak to that. So following the Hyde Park fire, um, after the you know, couple years, I would say that it took us to get through the recovery process and some of the federal assistance programs that help um, get some mulch on the ground to stabilize the hill slopes. When we closed out that work, um, we pretty quickly transitioned to thinking about how do we go about preparing ourselves better for the next fire. And um, some of that work has really paid off this time around, both in lessons learned and, you know, impacts on the landscape. And one of the big ways that we were able to start engaging in 
watershed protection is what we're calling it, but most of that work really centers around forest health um, projects, um, including fuels mitigation work and some prescribed fire. Our, the opportunity was really to came through working with our local watershed co coalition that was also formed following the High Park fire. And that coalition group um, brought together um, a lot of really interested parties in doing this type of work. And in addition, we merged and became involved with the Front Range uh, Fireshed Network, which includes agencies like TNC, um, counties, the U.S. Forest Service nonprofit, utilities partners. And the goal of that work has been to take these individual treatments, you know, where opportunities exist, and to start to string those and connect those together on the landscape in a way that um, we could hopefully affect future fire behavior at increasingly larger scales. So that might look like strategic fuel breaks. It might look like um, thinning projects around communities. Um, but the goal is really to create a network, a connected network, as opposed to having some polka dots on, on a map that um, collectively may not have the same kind of impact. So that's been a great opportunity. And we were able, uh, following the fire, to secure some you know, fairly small funding um, that we've been able to direct to this work. But because of the number of partners involved and um, the work of our local watershed coalition, we've been able to leverage, you know, every city dollar that we have put toward this kind of work um, has um, been leveraged um, between three and five other dollars brought to that. So we feel like it's been a great investment and we're really focused on projects that affect our, uh, our quality downstream um, on our Poudre River supplies. Nice. Yeah, I'm sure that that's good for more than just the watershed. I mean, it's good for everybody, the, the people who live there, the communities that, that are there to, to prevent or at least lessen the effects of these fires. So that's good. If I might um, offer also sort of the, um, the good housekeeping part of this is that we've also done some um, evaluations and assessment of our water supply infrastructure in the watershed. And we've gone through and assessed where um, fire associated risks um, occur and um, measures that we could take to mitigate that. Um, we're pretty fortunate that we don't have a lot of um, exposed or uh, vulnerable assets, but we, we did do that type of work just for an awareness perspective. And um, Cameron Peak Fire has also brought up uh, a few opportunities perhaps that we didn't have our eye on. So I think that's a really important part in uh, water supply protection is to assess your critical infrastructure, where it is, what are the fire associated risks around that. Great. Well, thanks, Jill. This has been uh, very informative. Thanks for sharing your expertise. Maybe we should get to the, the end of show quiz. Are you ready for the end of show quiz? I guess so. All right. As ready as you're going to be, huh? <laughs> this is a fire quiz in keeping with our, our topic at hand here, Jill. So we'll see what you, what you know about fire here. So number one, the fire festival was a music festival that went down in flames. Where was the fire festival held? 
Was it A, the Bahamas, B, the Galapagos, C, the Hawaiian Islands, or D, the British Isles? Where was the fire festival held? I am going to go for the Hawaiian Islands. Oh, that is close, but it was actually the Bahamas. Oh. It was actually, that was the one with Ja Rule and uh, I can't remember. Billy McFarlane put it on. It was this big, the big hoax one. All right. Well, you can still get two out of three here. Don't get, dis don't get discouraged. Uh, number two, what is unique about the web browser Firefox? A, it is owned by the Chinese government. B, it was renamed Microsoft Edge. C, it's made by a not-for-profit organization. Or D, it was invented by the MyPillow guy. Which uh, is unique about the web browser Firefox? Is it, it was created by a non-profit organization? That is correct. Yay! All right. You can get two out of three here, 66%, which is respectable if you answer this question correct, Jill. Uh, the science fiction horror movie Firestarter was about a girl who could start fires with her mind. Who played that girl? Was it A, Lindsay Lohan, B, Christina Ricci, C, Shannon Doherty, or D, Drew Barrymore? Well, my first thought was Drew Barrymore, so I'm going to go with that. That is correct. You are two for three. Good job, Jill. And thanks again for being on the show today. It was very, uh, very interesting and, and very informative. It sounds like you got a, you got a great job and you're, you're doing a great job at it. So thanks for sharing it with us today. No problem. And thanks so much for the opportunity to uh, join you on your podcast, Blair. And um, always, always interested in hearing what you have to say. All right. And thanks to our listeners for uh, sticking with us uh, for episode 12. And uh, if you have any suggestions for guests or uh, topics that we could tackle on the podcast, you can always email them to me at streamingwateratmail.com. Uh, if you like the show, I ask that you tell a friend or a colleague so they can start listening, see if they like it. And uh, if you have time, we would love it if you give us a positive uh, five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast player you're listening on. So uh, that's it for today, and we'll see you next time on the Streaming Water Podcast.